Number 296, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. Matthew chapter 16, we are continuing our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Matthew. But before we jump in at verse 24, I can't help but offer a couple of observations about what's going on in the United States just this past week because there is a clash of politics and religion happening right now. In our country, and it's truly genuinely fascinating to watch. The Pope is here in the United States, and it is fascinating to watch. 1517 is the date that we typically say was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Our English word Protestant, most folk don't know what that means anymore, has the word protest right in it protestant. 
the Protestant church was protesting the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. They went so far that some of the Protestant reformers, after attempting to reform the Catholic Church, finding out that that was an impossible thing to do because the church was so entrenched in its history and traditions, instead split off from the Roman Catholic Church and became known as the Protestants, the Protestant Reformers. The theology that we teach and advance here at GCA is known as Reformed Theology because it comes from the Protestant Reformation. This is the theology that is the basis the grounding, the platform on which the Protestant Reformation was built. The United States, whether you know it or not, was predominantly founded by, and our early government institutions and founding documents were influenced by Protestant thinking. In fact, most of you who are my age or around my age can remember the uh, hubbub and kerfuffle about John Kennedy when he became president because he was Roman Catholic. And the concern was that the Pope would be telling our president what to do. And so the, the Pope has been in the United States this past week, and watching him has been fascinating. And since we're in Matthew anyway, turn to Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus had been dealing with the fact that his apostles, and we're going to see it in the weeks to come, his apostles continue to kind of argue and discuss about who among them is going to be the greatest. They have a leader. Jesus is the leader of the group. But Jesus keeps saying that he's going to be leaving. And once he leaves, who's going to be the leader? Who's going to be the greatest among them? And Jesus repeatedly has to correct them and let them know that none of them are going to have primacy over the others. And in chapter 23, he actually makes that point, starting in verse 8. He says, do not be called rabbi or teacher, for one is your teacher, you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leader, for one is your leader, that is Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So there were three things that Jesus said. Don't be called teacher. Don't set yourself up among the twelve. Don't be the one who takes primacy over the others. And here on earth, don't call any man your spiritual father, because you have one father, God in heaven. And don't call each other leaders, because you have a leader, and that is Christ. And so now the Pope is in town, the Il Papa. That word means father which is why he's called the Holy Father. Interesting to see people on the news referring to the Pope, which means Father, and referring to him as Holy Father. But this week, he addressed a joint session of Congress. And if you ever wanted real, genuine, inescapable, unavoidable, inarguable proof that the Roman Catholic Church is fully apostate, Listen to what he said when the head of the Roman Catholic Church, Catholic, by the way, means universal, the supposedly holy 
Roman universal church papa, father, stood in front of a joint session of Congress and spoke for about an hour and never once mentioned Christ. And yet, he carries the title Vicar of Christ. Do you know what the word vicar means? V-I-C-A-R. We talk about Christ's vicarious atonement. It means in its place. It means substitution. And so, he is known as and wears the title of the Vicar of Christ. He is the substitute for Christ. He stands in Christ's stead, in his place. And he stood in front of the leaders of these United States as a religious leader and talked about climate change and how we should welcome the illegal aliens coming into our country. That's what he talked about. He talked about political things. Didn't want to upset the other political leaders, so he kept his message as liberal as it could be, but as unchristian as it could possibly be. Not a word, not a word about Jesus Christ. And yet they represent themselves as the church of Jesus Christ, the primary church of Jesus Christ. So anyway... I watched that, and by the time he was done talking, there was no more question in my mind that the Catholic Church is fully apostate. Now, will that make people angry that I just said that, and that it's out on the Internet and people will hear it? Yes, it'll make people angry. And I don't care. Because only one thing matters within the Christian Church. The Christian Church is Christocentric. It is all about Christ. Where did Christ put himself? He put himself at the very center of the religious universe and said, what you think about me determines your entire eternity. Seems like that would be worth mentioning, bringing up. When he was dealing with his own apostles, he did not say that Peter would have primacy, despite the fact that the Pope claims that he has apostolic succession right from Peter because they believe that Peter was given the keys to the kingdom. And as we saw in the past weeks, those keys were never given to Peter. In fact, it was given to all of them as a group. That ability to bind and loose was given to the apostles as a group. And here Jesus said, don't call any of you father, pope, papa. And yet there is this man traveling the world in his Pope Mobile, acting like the head of the Christian church on the planet. And I don't care. Because he's not my father, and he's not my papa, and he's not my pope, and I have exactly one father, and he is in heaven. And I have one teacher, and we are all brothers. I have one leader, and that is Christ because that's what the Bible says. And when it comes to Roman Catholicism, you either have to side with the Bible or side with Rome. I go with the Bible. Amen. You got it? Yeah. All right. I just had to get that off my chest. Matthew 16. That's where we are this morning. I simply don't know where the health, wealth, prosperity folk get their doctrine. I don't know... Where they come up with the idea, you certainly can't find it in the Bible anywhere, the idea that if you come to Jesus, everything in your life's going to get magically better. 
It's one of the ways that they market Jesus to you. It's one of the ways that they market Christianity is that they say, if you come join our church or you come make a profession or a decision for Christ, if you just come do our thing the way we do it, that things are going to get better in your life. You're going to get healthier. You're going to get wealthier and all your bills are going to get paid. You're going to get a car. Somebody might give you like a lazy boy recliner lounger, a black leather, cup holders, electronic, power everything. Come to Jesus and things are automatically going to improve and you're never going to get sick and your children are going to run faster and jump higher and just everything's going to go better if you just come to Jesus. You can't find that anywhere in the Bible. In fact, Jesus is about to say in verse 24 the absolute inverse of that. In fact, he defines Christianity as a death sentence. And we have to remember that in the first century, following Jesus was a death sentence. Whether it was persecution against the Jewish believers by the Jewish leaders who were determined to stop the movement because, after all, they have a vested interest in stopping the movement because if Jesus is who he says he is, then they're out of a job and they are whitewashed sepulchers and they are a den of vipers and they are under the curse of God. So they have a real vested interest in stopping the Christian claims and the Christian theology and the movement, the way that is following Christ. But then later, as Christianity made its way to Rome, the Roman emperors, who saw themselves as being incarnate gods, were bothered by this encroachment of Christianity that said there's no human gods, and in fact the whole pantheon of Greco-Roman gods don't exist, and there is only one God, and Christ is his son, and you worship him alone. And that sort of monotheism really ran afoul of all Roman thinking and really ran afoul of Roman emperors. And so emperors like Nero attempted to stamp out Christianity in Rome Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells us that Nero used to dip Christians in oil and then tie them to posts and light them to light his garden at night. That's what it meant to say, I'm a Christian. To be baptized as Christian, to be publicly known as Christian. The Christian church in Rome reached the point where they couldn't even meet above ground anymore And a common meeting place for Christians became the catacombs of the dead. And they would meet together just for the opportunity to talk about and learn about Christ. So Jesus is going to use the language of death to describe what it is to embrace Christianity. Because he has been telling his apostles and telling us by extension things like, You're not of the world. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But you're not of the world. I've chosen you out of the world, and therefore the world hates you. Now that's something that seems to be missing from so much of modern Christianity. Modern Christianity is really working hard and bending over backwards to accommodate the world. And to get along with the world. I think we saw an example of that this week. That the so-called Christian church has really lost its sense of why it exists. The Christian church is supposed to be salt and light in the world. 
The Christian church is supposed to be like a great big flashing red neon sign that says God is alive and God is real and God is a judge. And the church has forgotten that. Instead, the church is busy kowtowing to whatever popular culture wants the church to do. Listen to Jesus' words. Verse 16, no, verse 24 of Matthew 16. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. That's the first difficulty for us egocentric people. The very essence of our sinful estate is how egocentric we are. Ever since the downfall of humanity, our pride has overtaken us, our ego, our sense of self-sufficiency. I don't need anyone, and I certainly don't need God. And I am not going to have this man, Christ, rule over me. I'll decide what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it, and I'll decide who's in charge, and clearly that's me. I'm the one in charge. So he said, first, if you're going to follow after him, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Now, his listeners knew full well what that meant. Because even though historically you can find crucifixion dating all the way back to the Medo-Persian Empire, it was really the Romans who perfected it. It was the Romans who said, oh, here's a form of torture and death that we can really amp up. We can really use this in a way that not only kills our enemies, but makes a public display and shame of them. It was commonly known that if you hung on a tree, if you were on a cross, if you were crucified in your death, then you were the worst of the worst. To be crucified was an ignominious death. Heroes didn't die on crosses. Thieves, robbers, insurrectionists died on crosses. A cross is a place of death. It is an instrument of torture, and it is a place of shame. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. So you have to, number one, deny yourself because Christianity simply isn't about you. It's not about me. It is, as I've already said, Christocentric. It's all about Christ and him alone. He gets all the glory. When it's all said and done and we're gathered around the throne of God, there's not going to be anybody there talking about what Micah did. Dig Micah. Did you see what he did? Good old Micah. That's not happening. In fact, Micah himself will say, all the glory goes to my Savior. Because he is going to get all of the preeminence forever. And he knows that. And God knows that. And the Spirit of God knows that. It's just we humans who are a little vague on the topic. It's just humans who keep thinking that somehow we can insert ourselves into that dynamic and say, well, it's mostly about Christ. But there's got to be some of this that's about me, right? No. Because all you bring to the party is your depravity. All you bring is your sinfulness. You bring no goodness. You bring no righteousness. The Bible's clear about that. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Isaiah says our best righteousnesses 
are filthy rags. So we've got nothing that we bring that is going to impress God or obligate God or make God say, oh, well, since you did that, come on in. I wasn't so sure until I saw that. There's simply nothing that is going to allow you to get up to the throne and say, scooch over there a little bit, God. Scooch was the verb I went with there. (laughs) Scooch over a little bit, God. I'd like to share that throne with you. That's not going to happen. You're going to get no glory. He's going to get all the glory because that's his master plan. That's his design. Human beings exist for the glory and worship of God. That's why we're even here. But we forget that. And we start thinking that God exists for us. God exists to make my life better. God exists to make me cooler and groovier. And so we start thinking of Jesus like he is some kind of accoutrement to our already pretty groovy life. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty cool. Then I add Jesus. Now I'm extra, extra cool. But that's not the way the Bible tells it. The Bible says you start out sinful and depraved. Evidence of your depravity is how egocentric you are, how self-sufficient you are, how much you think you don't need anyone or anything. And so you need God to inhabit you, to put his spirit inside you, to change you from within, to take out that stony heart and put in that heart of flesh. And then by his spirit and by his power, he makes you understand not only your depravity, but your desperate need of a savior. And if he doesn't change you, you'll never come to that conclusion. If he leaves you to yourself, you'll walk through the rest of your silly little life thinking you're fine. Have you ever talked to people who have that attitude? You try to tell them about Christ? Try to tell them you actually need a Savior? And they'll say, no, no, I don't. I'm fine. Really? Based on what? What do you find about, well, you know, I don't kill. I don't commit adultery. I don't lie much. I don't. Because people really do think that they're completely self-sufficient. They really do think they're good enough. They really do think that when they die, God's going to look at them and say, you tried. You were sincere. Good job. And that's not the way the Bible describes it at all, ever. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise see the kingdom of God. Which means the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who were trying to be good, weren't good enough, and you have to be better than them. Because the standard is absolute perfection. The standard is absolute righteousness and complete holiness. No spot, no blemish. That's the standard. And you don't got that. You can't do that. Which is why you need a savior. That's why you need somebody in your place. That's why you need an actual substitute. You need somebody who could satisfy the righteous standard of God on your behalf and then impute his perfection to you, which is why Hebrews 10, 14, I've quoted it so often that I hope it's tattooed to your brains by now. Hebrews 10, 14 says that by that one sacrifice, Jesus perfected forever those that he sanctified. Those that he set apart as his exclusive property, he perfected forever. 
completed them utterly. There's nothing else you can or need to add to the finished work of Christ. When Ned got here this morning, we were talking a little bit about the difference between the Arminian concept of the work of Christ and the biblical concept of the work of Christ. Some people think that what Jesus did at Calvary was that he made salvation possible, but he didn't actually accomplish anything. The Bible says that he actually fully accomplished everything he came to do, which is why he could say, it is finished, it's accomplished, it's done. What's done? Everything he came to do. And he accomplished salvation for all those people he came to save. That's a finished work, a done deal, and you didn't do it. You are the recipient of an astounding grace. So knowing all that, the reason that I recited all that for you is to ask you, well then, if you didn't add anything, where's that ego coming from? I mean, if you got nothing, if you're truly sinful, if you're actually depraved, where is pride in that? Well, if you know then that you shouldn't have any pride, that you shouldn't have any ego where your Christianity is concerned, then Jesus can say to you, deny yourself. Deny yourself. No way, no way. Me, it's about me. Isn't something about me? Come on, dig me. We're just all so self-centered. And Jesus says Christianity begins at, this isn't about you. And yet, as I said, so much of modern Christendom thinks it's about people and is willing to kowtow to the world, is willing to bend over backwards and ape the world and act like the world and not draw any differentiation between themselves and the world. And yet, we're not supposed to be worldlings. We're pilgrims and strangers in a strange land, and this is not our permanent residence, and this is not our home, and we have a home, but this isn't it. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may also be. He's doing that on purpose to establish the eternal home, the eternal dwelling that we are all going to, where we will forever stand as trophies of grace so that he himself gets all the glory in saying, look what I did, I even saved George. I went that far. I saved sinners. And then he gets all the glory. At men's group, by the way, men's group is this Tuesday night. At men's group, I guess it was two weeks ago, we talked about dying to self, and I pointed out that the word witness in the Bible is actually martos in the Greek. It's the word from which we get martyr. To be a witness for Christ means to die to yourself. To be a martyr and to be a Christian, to be a Christian witness in the first century was a death sentence. And we've lost that sense of urgency because we live in 21st century America. There are people on the planet right now who are dying for the Christian witness. We have air conditioning and carpet and so much comfort that we can take or leave Christianity. And it doesn't change our life or our wellness or our lifestyle. It changes nothing about us. Add Christ, don't add Christ, whatever, same life. That's not how Christianity is supposed to be. 
You're supposed to be a witness for Christ. Sadly, far too often, people who profess Christ will not profess Christ in an atmosphere that is hostile to Christ because they don't want to suffer the consequences. People are not willing to stand against the resistance and just tell the truth because they're afraid that the world is going to hate them or that people are going to resist the message or that they themselves might suffer some loss. Jesus said, lay down your life, pick up your cross, deny yourself because it's about me. And by the way, notice that that is like ground level, entry level Christianity. If anyone wishes to come after me, it's the starting gate. This is not advanced Christianity. This is fundamental Christianity 101. Want to be a Christian? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. You get it? Mm -hmm. See, there's a, there's a cost. It's an actual cost to Christianity. I'm not out there looking for enemies. I'm not trying to cause trouble. But simply by telling people the truth, well, that causes problems. So then he goes on, verse 25. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. So what is your life really about? What is your life really about if he could use the phrase, find it? See, life down here without Christ is pointless. Life down here without Christ is vacuous. Life down here without Christ is like brute beasts. There's no purpose to that life. And ultimately, there's only judgment for those lives. If you don't have Christ, you have no understanding of what's going on in the world or why these things are happening. We've talked about this a lot on Wednesday nights as we've been working through the Old Testament. And now that we're in the book of Hosea and talking about the, the nation of Israel and their dealings with the enemy nations that surround them, who are still over there. They've just changed names. Babylon became Iraq. Persia became Iran, but they're still busy talking about blowing Israel off the map. Same enemies. Well, you can't understand that. You can't understand the tension in the Middle East if you don't understand your Bible. And so the politicians who are offering us political solutions to a spiritual problem can't come up with a solution no matter how many times they invite people over to the White House lawn and get them to shake hands and sign treaties on camera. You can't change the minds and hearts and spiritual darkness that is going on in the Middle East. You can't change that by signing a piece of paper because this reaches all the way back to Abraham. And you're not going to change that. There's going to be no peace on this planet until the Prince of Peace returns. There's going to be no national unity until David's greater son sets up his kingdom and rules from Jerusalem and the nations all flow to it. Until then, there will always be the tribulation, the trouble, the problems of this world. Wars and rumors of war. Ethnos against ethnos. Jesus said, you're going to have all that. That's part of what it is to be alive on planet Earth. 
And the only way that you're going to be able to make sense of this life, the only way that you're going to be able to endure the problems of this life and not give in to drink drugs or suicide is if you recognize that there is a larger purpose to all this. And the larger purpose isn't about you. It's about the glorification of Christ. And once you get that, once you start understanding the big picture, once you see that God has already declared the end from the beginning, then you'll realize that you're in good hands. You're okay. There's no problem that you're going to encounter in this lifetime that God didn't already prepare for you and prepare you for, and that he's going to take you through it, and he's going to get you to the other side of it, and he's going to do all of that for his glory and for your good. And you'll be able to say, like Paul, that indeed all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called, according to his purpose. You're going to have what Paul calls the peace that passes understanding. Christians go through struggles, go through trials, and go through it sometimes singing. One of the most remarkable aspects of the history of Christian martyrdom is how Christian martyrs would pray and praise and sing as they burned because they knew that there was nothing here that was valuable. And they knew that within minutes, they were going to be face-to-face with their Savior. And they were going to be home. And they were going to be safe. And they were going to be well. And they were going to be eternally joyful. And that God himself was going to wipe away every tear. No more fear. No more sickness. No more death. Okay, burn me. I got something to sing about. That's the Christian attitude. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Because if you seek To save your life, you'll lose it. Well, he's obviously talking eternally here. He's talking spiritually here. If you actually think that this lifetime is all about you and your physical life and your physical wellness and gathering up stuff and whoever dies with the most toys wins, if you actually think that's what life is all about, you're going to lose your life eternally. You get to the book of Revelation, you get to Revelation 20, and we read about something called the second death. Here's a chilling phrase. According to Revelation 20, you either get two births and then eternal life. You get your physical birth and then you're born again. And after you're born again, you have the guarantee of eternal life. Or you get one birth and two deaths. You die physically and then you die eternally in the second death. And so Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, if you really make this physical earthly life about you and you're willing to deny him to save your own skin, you're going to find out what judgment is. But if you lose your life for my sake, You'll find it. One of the most elusive qualities of human life is contentment. Most of my life I've chased contentment. Most human beings are ill-content. They're not satisfied. Because no matter what they have, it's never good enough. It's never 
plentiful enough or it's never secure enough. Sure, I have food today, but what about tomorrow? Sure, I have a place to live today, but what about next month's rent? What if I get a sickness? What if I lose my job? What if somebody leaves me? What if I... Ah, you drive yourself crazy over that stuff. But Jesus said things like, take no thought for tomorrow. The things of tomorrow will care for themselves. And then he said, sufficient for today is the trouble thereof. You got no guarantee you'll be here tomorrow. But today... Today, anybody in this room that's hungry, we have food in the back. Nobody in this room is naked, thank goodness. <laughs> Everybody got here in a car from your home. You have a place to live. In your home, you probably have a refrigerator. You probably have a closet full of clothes. You can see your way clear to the end of today. The next 24 hours are handled. So you're not worried about today. But tomorrow, oh man, a week from now? Anyway, I was talking about contentment. The only content people I've ever met in my life are Christians. Amen. Because they're satisfied. Because they know that whatever has happened in their lives reached them on purpose and was ordained for them by God. And they know that they don't have any control over the next breath or the next thought. And they recognize that everything they are and everything they have is the grace of God being poured out abundantly on them. And they realize like David. David said, I am old and I have been young. That verse resonates with me now more than it used to. <laughs> I'm old and I have been young. And, and, and then he says... And I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor the seed begging bread. In other words, he's saying, I now have experience. I've lived long enough that I can follow God's track record. And I can see that God has consistently, unerringly, unfalteringly, faithfully taken care of me. It's funny, I, I was talking to somebody the other day who's known me for a long time. And I said, I've had a good life. And they've known me so long that they started listing some of the big tragedies of my life. Because if you live long enough, trouble comes. Trouble, part of the package. And they started listing, you know, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about that? And what about that? I said, you know, oddly enough, none of that in retrospect bothers me. And in fact, every one of those things you named were growth periods for me that I wouldn't have missed. Had I not gone through those, I wouldn't be the person I am today. It took those things to train me, to teach me how to have faith in God and rest in him even in the worst of circumstances. The troubles of this life, the trials of this life are all just God chipping away on your ego and making you more dependent on him. And when it's all done, according to the writer of Hebrews, he says that kind of chastening brings about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So now I've reached a point where I'm actually content. I don't mean to make anybody jealous, but I have the best possible life. And I'll go two out of three falls with anybody in the room to prove it. I, I have the best possible life. I do what I love for a living. 
I'm surrounded by friends and people who love me. The kids are healthy. The bills are paid. I, I really, at this moment, at this exact moment in life, I am so confident that God is going to handle everything that's ahead of me because he's handled everything I've already gone through. And I can look back on all of it and say, that wasn't me, and that wasn't me, and that wasn't me. If it was left up to me, I wouldn't have solved it that way. I would have made a greater mess out of it. If I had been in charge right there, I'd be dead now. If I had been in charge of these things that have already happened to me, I wouldn't be the man I am now. God took me through all of that on purpose to get me to this point. And I think I'm finally learning some of those important lessons of life. And once you start to understand those, contentment breaks out. Peace. Peace with God. Listen, if you're okay with the one who made heaven and earth, if you're okay with the judge of the universe, if he is not angry with you but is satisfied with you through the finished work of his son, then really what can life throw at you that is really going to upset your life in a permanent way? Nothing. Because you have the golden ticket. You have that one thing that the world doesn't have, which is the understanding that when you leave this world, you launch into the eternity that God has planned for you, where you become joint heir with his son. And it doesn't get better than that. We spend so much of our life looking at what other people have. Say, I should have that. Why don't I have that? He's got a big house. Why don't I have a big house? He got a new car. Why don't I have a new car? He's got a pretty good life. For me, it's more about driving around looking at the church buildings people have. <laughs> He's got a big church building. Yeah, it's just so easy to start thinking in physical terms and think, why don't I have that? Why don't I have that? You know what I got? Join air with Christ. Uh-oh. Yeah, I mean... Think about it for a moment. Expand your thinking and imagination. If the God who made everything decided that he was going to honor his son, what could he whip up? What could he do to glorify his son? What could he give his son as a gift, as an inheritance to show his son the extent of his love? And you're going to share in that? Oh, well, then maybe I don't need a bigger house or a newer car. Maybe I'm good to go. And my home and my inheritance and my brethren and my peace and my joy all lays ahead of me. And that's what I'm going to get for the life that I give up here. That's a, that's a fair trade in anybody's book. It's hard now because we struggle now. We suffer now. We got to go through the trials now. And that's hard. But the payoff? You deny yourself. You lay down your life. You sacrifice the here and now for the better resurrection. And you gain eternity in God's presence. That's worth it. What? you got to go through 
If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You hear that? What is a man profited if he gains everything this world has to offer? I don't know. Who's the richest guy right now? Somebody in the Bill Gates territory? Trump. Trump. <laughs> He's probably up there somewhere. The richest guy on the planet. Whoever it is that has come the closest to actually acquiring the whole world. Jesus just said, if you have all of that, all of that, if you have everything the world has to give, if you have all the money and the fame and the power, if you've got all this stuff and you don't have me, you got nothing. I've asked this question enough times, but I'll ask it again. When you die, how much of your stuff do you leave behind? All of it. Every bit of it. You take None of it with you. Want to hear a joke? So finally there was a guy, a really rich guy. He had converted all of his money into gold. And he found a loophole where he was able to take it with him. A big old sack of gold. And he died and he took his big old sack of gold to heaven. Now you know St. Peter's not at the gate, right? It's a joke. Anyway, he gets to the gate. Peter says, what's in the bag? He says, here, you look. And he opens it and he looks at it and he goes, oh, fine, hands it back to him. Somebody behind Peter goes, well, what is it? And he says, pavement. <laughs> <laughs> Streets of gold. Yeah, you, you take nothing with you. And because you leave all of it behind, Think how poor you will be if you stand before God with nothing, you have nothing, and you don't have Christ. (laughs) Then what do you get? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. The Bible describes things like outer darkness. I can't even fathom it. But we know it's described as where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus himself talked about hell more than he talked about heaven because judgment is a reality. And if you have gained everything this planet has to offer and you don't have Christ, when you die, you leave behind everything you gained on this planet. You leave it here on this planet. And by the way, the best this planet has to offer is going to burn. Peter says that the world such as it is right now is going to be burned and then remade. So even the best that the world has to offer is kindling. And you're going to trade that for eternity? You're going to trade that for well-being with God. You're willing to be happy for your three score and ten down here. Walk around thinking you're something and then end up standing in front of Christ himself when you've got nothing except, well, when I was on the planet, I had some power. When I was on the planet, I had some money. When I was on the planet, I was really something. Yeah, well, you're in heaven now, and guess what? My son is everything. And you got nothing, and you are nothing, and depart from me. 
So Jesus asked the question, what if a man gains everything and loses his soul and then asks parenthetically, what will you exchange for your soul? What can you give God that he will consider a fair trade when it comes time for you to be judged? What do you got? He's right in the middle of depart from me and you say, hold it. I want a bargain. Because I, I got this. What could you possibly have? What could you offer? You can't offer him anything. Even your good works, even the best of your works are nothing. You can exchange nothing for your soul. And so he says the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels. That's judgment language. He's saying, listen, judgment's coming. Judgment is a reality. Jesus was not afraid to talk about judgment. Shall we do it? Oh, the clock's ticking, and I know you're probably getting hungry. Lawrence, is the food ready? I'm getting the okay in the back. Let me show you something in the book of Acts. This is in my mind because, there we go, 1722. This is in my mind because they are already planning the conference next March in Gladeville, and I've been asked to teach for a couple of nights on Jesus as judge, a topic that is not commonly taught on in churches. And, and I'm going to be starting from this passage because notice what Paul said to these philosophers on Mars Hill. Now, the spectrum of Greek philosophy runs between the Epicureans and the Stoics, basically. The Stoics said, you know, in order to find the meaning of life or purpose in life, you deny yourself everything that's physical. The Epicureans went the complete opposite direction and said, no, you indulge your flesh in everything. Then that's the only way you'll find purpose in life. All of Greek philosophy starts with the a priori position that God doesn't exist. So now let's discuss why life exists, why men are here, what's the point or purpose of life without God as part of the equation. And so that's the crowd that Paul is dealing with here. And they are so superstitious that they are following after all these Greco-Roman gods and they've got all these different altars to all these different gods because they don't want to miss one and so they also have an altar to the unknown god just in case they missed one you know you got to cover all your bases but what's fascinating to me is what paul says to them he is speaking to unbelievers and this is this is his evangelistic message and he does not start with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He starts with a message of warning and judgment. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. I think the King James there says, too superstitious. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, 
this I proclaim to you. So he's going to use this opportunity of them saying there is an unknown God. And he says, I know that God. Let me tell you about Christ. The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. He's declaring that God is absolutely sovereign over all the affairs of men, even who they are, what race they are, and where they live. God determined these things. Verse 27, that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature as being like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. End of sermon. When was the last time you heard an evangelist go out and say that? Hmm. Number one, you're ignorant of who God is. And you need to know who God is because he made everything. And the fact that you are living, breathing, have breath, know your name is because God is doing that. You have ample evidence of his existence and your denial of him will be judged. And he is sending his son, who is the heir of everything, who is going to come back and judge mankind. That was his evangelistic message. Very different than the stuff you hear today. It was a message of judgment. Jesus said, The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. That's actually Psalm 62, 12 that he's quoting from. And so he's quoting it right from their scripture. This shouldn't be a surprise to them that the Son of Man is going to return to the planet and his purpose in returning is to judge. Paul carried it right into the New Testament, into the New Covenant. And when speaking to unbelievers, did not kowtow to them, did not try to make them feel better about themselves, did not say, please make Jesus Lord and Savior, did not say, come to Jesus and your life will be improved and you'll get healthier, wealthier. No, what he said is, you don't know God and God made everything and he's sending his son and his son will judge you. That was the message. He got it right here from Jesus. Who said, I'm coming back and I'm coming back in judgment. And when he does, what are you going to exchange for your soul? What do you got? Next week, we will start at verse 28. And I will tell you now that it is one of the most controversial verses in the New Testament. All three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
all make reference to it. But if we touched on it now, it would take us too much time to really discuss the various ways that the verse has been understood and abused, and we have to transition right into chapter 17 on the heels of it in order to make sense of it. So we'll stop right there. Now, I hope that this morning's message, my 60th birthday message, I hope it didn't come off as too uh, harsh and judgmental. I just want to show you and point out to you that this is a reality of the gospel. The way that the apostles, the disciples, dealt with the gospel is that when talking to believers, when talking to those that God had chosen, the elect, those who had the spirit of God and who were being called to repentance and responding, when dealing with them, all you see is kindness and grace and love and fellowship and brotherhood and forgiveness and forgiveness and forgiveness and grace abundant and grace, grace, grace. That's the way we ought to be with each other as brethren. Bearing each other, lifting each other up, encouraging one another, helping each other through our struggles and our trials, carrying one another's burdens, and understanding that the same grace that we're so dependent on is the same grace that they're so dependent on. But when talking to those on the outside, the disciples, the apostles, did not compromise the message. They didn't dumb down the message to make it more palatable to the unbelieving world. They did not use Jesus as entertainment for goats. What they did was they warned them of the judgment to come. And that is the way that the gospel is meant to be used, spoken, preached, advanced among the believers, among those that are being called to Christ. We have a message of just phenomenally good news. There is a solution for your cancer. There is a cure for your sinfulness. And it is free. It is such good news. But that good news belongs to the children. Once somebody has made themselves an enemy of the things of God, once they've made themselves an enemy of Christ, then the only message we have for them is he's coming back and he's a judge. And you've got to deal with that. And there's my happy, feel-good, 60th birthday message. You understand? Mm -hmm. Now, by the way, I'm only saying what Jesus said. Unlike some religious leaders this week. I'm only saying what Jesus said. That means that we have to deal with it. We have to be able to inculcate it into our larger theology and understand it. He loved me dramatically, fiercely, eternally. He loved me with an everlasting love, and he plucked me like a brand out of the fire. And I will tell anybody, anywhere, that that kind of grace and goodness exists. But the people who hate him, the people who deny him, the people who want him to be extricated completely from our life and society and thinking, those people have nothing but judgment waiting for them. Got it? Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org.
www.bethlehemchurch.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.